it's time for Media Watch. This week, uh, Colin Peacock's discussing that Sam Casey column and how tennis star Naomi Osaka took on the media and won. But first, how the media marked the end of a war that lasted nearly 20 years. installations around Saigon waiting for buses with the queue. It told the Vietnamese that this was the end of the line. For most of those who wanted to leave their country, this would be their last chance. That was CBS News coverage of the chaotic evacuation of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon back in 1975, with North Vietnamese forces poised to overrun the capital of what was then South Vietnam. But while that brought down the curtain on just over 10 years of war for the U.S. and their allies in Vietnam, the one they launched in 2001 in Afghanistan lasted almost twice as long. Back in May, the U.S. announced that U.S.-led NATO forces would fully withdraw from Afghanistan by the 11th of September this year, exactly 20 years on from the Twin Towers atrocity that led them there in the first place in pursuit of al-Qaeda and their allies, the Taliban. And it was back in May this year that the BBC's veteran correspondent, Lise Doucette, sat down with the U.S. commander, General Scott Miller, and she asked him if they were preparing to abandon Afghanistan to civil war. You were one of the soldiers on the ground to topple the Taliban in 2001. It must hurt as a soldier that you're leaving and the Taliban are on the brink of returning to power, either through negotiations or the battlefield? You know, I'm not, I'm not unique in that sense. There's obviously uh, many nations with many service members that have spent a, a great deal of time in Afghanistan. And uh, if you ask them what they would uh, like as an outcome... They'd like to see this country come back together and end the decades decades of violence. Now, New Zealand has one of those other countries that General Miller referred to there. Our last troops left quietly at that time back in May, about the same time that interview was conducted. And last weekend, well ahead of that September deadline, the US forces abandoned their bases, including the main one at Bagram outside Kabul, in the middle of the night with no warning at all, leaving behind thousands of vehicles, tons of supplies and garbage. Indeed, they left so swiftly that looters descended on the base before their Afghan partners could take it over. In the UK, ITN News reported it like this. The abandoned vehicles a sign of the hasty exit, which has seen many troops head home for the 4th of July. Many here feel America is giving up on this benighted country. Now that report also ran on News Hub at 6 last Tuesday here, and TVNZ's One News reported the withdrawal like this the same night. More than 90% of American troops are now out of Afghanistan. They evacuated under the cover of darkness, leaving Afghan troops to defend territory previously held by the Americans. The Taliban is already said to be gaining ground and issuing a warning to any remaining international forces. Meanwhile, in the US itself that same day, the commander-in-chief who made that call told reporters he didn't want any questions about Afghanistan, only about happy things. I want to talk about happy things, man. I'm not going to answer any more questions on Afghanistan. Look, it's 4th of July. I'm concerned that you guys are asking me questions that I'll answer next week. When I'm, this is a holiday weekend, I'm going to celebrate it. There's great things happening. I'll, be, I'll answer all your negative questions. Not negative, your legitimate questions. President Biden, as it happens, didn't take reporters' questions about Afghanistan this past week. But on Friday, he made a statement confirming the pullout. How many thousands more Americans' daughters and sons are you willing to risk? How long would you have them stay? 
Now that big base at Bagram was also a headquarters for New Zealand forces in Afghanistan, including members of our SAS. But after reports about the US's hasty secret withdrawal ran their course this past week, there wasn't much media attention on what happened next in Afghanistan itself. One exception though was World Watch on RNZ's midday report. The crisis is building in Afghanistan. Yes, well it is. The country's fragility, I suppose you would say, is on full display right now. More than 1,000 Afghan government soldiers have have, by all accounts, fled across the border with Tajikistan. Here, our Defence Minister, Pini Henare, has been quoted as saying New Zealanders keeping a close eye on the situation in Afghanistan, but his on-air comment in the news this week amounted to just these six seconds in RNZ's news bulletins. It came up uh, recently at our ASEAN Defence Ministers meeting. A number of countries raised it, but um, not in the past week we haven't. Meanwhile, National's Foreign Affairs spokesperson Jerry Brownlee did get a 16-second soundbite in RNZ's news when he said that what's happening in Afghanistan was extremely disappointing. But after all the years New Zealand contributed to the International Security Assistance Force, or ISAF for short, it is remarkable how little interest there is now in the US and NATO-led mission being folded up in time for the July the 4th holiday in the US. More than 3,500 New Zealand Defence Force personnel deployed to Afghanistan after 2001, and 10 of them died there, and the entire commitment cost more than $300 million. Journalists Nikki Hager and John Stevenson revealed a raid by their New Zealand SAS called Operation Burnham, which sparked an inquiry that ran for years and eventually concluded there may have been no wrongful civilian deaths, but a child was probably killed, and the Defence Minister and the public were misled. And the media were also misled by the New Zealand Defence Force over the deadly Battle of Baghak, and journalist John Stevenson sued for defamation when the Defence Force claimed he'd made up parts of his reports from Afghanistan in order to damage his credibility. Also, there are about 3,500 people of Afghan origin living right here in New Zealand, including some of the refugees from the Tampa ship who were huge news back in 2004, and some people who worked with our defence forces there whose lives were endangered by the association with our military also live here now. When the Prime Minister announced back in February that our last soldiers there would be coming home in May, she said their commitment to replace conflict with peace will always be remembered. But as the Taliban now create conflict in more areas that had some peace when US-led forces were there, it remains to be seen if Afghanistan is out of sight and out of mind now for our media, now that we're all gone. More live sport than you've ever heard before and we'll make sense of it every day for you, 24-7, every single day. SENZ pledges to enrich the lives of a sports fan in New Zealand. That was Craig Hutchison, the chief executive of SEN, the Australian media company preparing to launch a brand new sports radio network here this coming week, SENZ. And there, Hutchie, as he's known in media circles across the Tasman, was telling reporters in Auckland that the new network would launch the 19th of July. Now at that event in Auckland, one of the SENZ's front rank hosts, former cricketer turned career broadcaster Ian Smith, said that strong opinions would be a big part of the mix for the new network. I want to give people the opportunity to ring up and and vent their spleen if they're angry. And soon after, another key host for SENZ, Rugby World Cup winner Stephen Donald, also mentioned some key behind-the-mic people. We're lucky to have Lash as our uh, producer. He's going to keep things upbeat and uh, he's given me five minutes a week where I can get real serious on rugby, so that's uh, that's about it. So uh, we're looking forward to it. 
Last Tuesday, Stuff reported that SENZ had already parted ways, in its words, with producer Sam Casey, nicknamed Lashes, last weekend. Now, Sam Casey is a multimedia producer, previously part of NZME's rural radio show The Country, and an in-house presenter for the Highlanders rugby franchise. We welcome here the Waratahs, who we played in the semi-final last year. And we know how that went down. And another of Sam Casey's gigs was a column in the monthly magazine Rugby News. In the July issue of Rugby News, Sam Casey argued that men's rugby was a necessity that brings in money, while women's rugby doesn't and is a luxury in the post-COVID era. And he also said that national women's teams and the Farrah Palmer Cup competition were nothing but a cost. And while he was at it, he called women's players girls. Sam Casey also said that elite-level men's rugby players were annoyed about resources supporting the women's game in tight times, though he didn't name any. But he did single out one rugby player, Alice Soper, an advocate for women's rugby, who he said was detached from reality. Well, this week, sportscaster and writer Scotty Stevenson, also known as Sumo, called Casey's column a rambling, shambolic manifesto direct from the Middle Ages, and he went on to say... If SENZ promised to hail a new, more enlightened era of sports talk radio in New Zealand, Sam Casey could not have hit a more off-key note. And SENZ itself evidently agreed. That statement issued to Stuff last Tuesday said, The views expressed by Sam Casey are inconsistent with our values of equality, respect and inclusiveness. And... While everyone's entitled to an opinion, the tone and language used in this instance were highly disrespectful to New Zealand's female sports athletes and our desire to stand with all New Zealand sports and its performers as an inclusive platform of respect. And they also urged Sam Casey to learn more about the evolution of women's sport around the world. It's quite a termination notice. But was one opinion in a monthly mag for subscribers really a sacking offence for a new sports broadcaster? Well, on Tuesday, RNZ's Wallace Chapman put that to Alice Soper herself on the panel. Oh, look, like I, that was never my intention, right, in terms of sharing it. I was just like, can we all have a bit of a laugh at how uh, old school this thinking is from a young man's mouth? And soon after, Alice Soper actually expressed a little sympathy for Sam Casey on News Talk ZB's Drive show. So, look, it's not uniquely his, and I do feel sorry for him that he's been the fall guy for basically a bunch of um, old ideas. Over the years, radio sports copped criticism for being too blokey, with few female voices and not a lot of women's sport on the air. So when SENZ was first mooted, we asked one of its big-name and longest-serving hosts, Gerard Waitley, would SENZ be the same? If you limit your conversation and pitch only to that blokey idea of what sport has been in the past, then you are frankly living in the past. I would feel absolutely confident knowing the people who are going to be on air, that's not what you would hear. It's likely Sam Casey didn't hear that response. Sam Casey told Stuff this week that he penned that piece to Ruffle Feathers before he even started with SENZ, and he told Stuff he didn't resile from the views he expressed, but admitted it wasn't his best work. The mistake was rushing through it without giving too much of a second thought. One strike and you're out is certainly an interesting way to go about things, though. While it's not unknown for columnists to lose their gig for airing controversial and contested views, it's not at all common for journalists to lose their jobs over something they've written or said elsewhere, which isn't actually abusive, defamatory or especially harmful, just unpopular and not very good. Wallace Chapman's fellow panellist that day, Chris Kyra, a journalist-turned-PR person who's done a fair bit of reputation management and crisis communications for clients over the years, also reckoned SENZ had been a bit hasty. 
his bosses seemed to be very quick to, to chuck a young fellow who was three weeks into a job out the door. I wonder whether they would have done the same for some of the named stars that work for SENZ at the same time, who, you know, have had have very strong views of their own. But I prefer to go for the learning experience and teach a young guy to, hey, actually, what the hell were you thinking? Let's do better next time. But the thing is, though, this was the next time. Three years ago, working for NZME's radio show The Country, he wrote a very similar piece headlined The Harsh Truth About Women's Rugby. It began like this. Is it going to take the sky to fall, a meteorite to hit, an apocalypse to happen for people to realise that pay parity in sport isn't a gender issue? Well, self-evidently it is an issue with gender at its heart. But Sam Casey went on to say he'd had just about enough of people claiming the pay differences between genders and sport was solely down to female versus male. And he went on to say... I know it's 2018 and the PC brigade are out in full force, but New Zealand rugby is a business, not a charity. Sugarcoat it, dance around the subject, blow the trumpet, do whatever you like, but people just genuinely aren't interested in it. Well, back then, there was no backlash. But three years on, people are more interested in what Sam Casey had to say, including his new and now former employers, who, it seems, care a little more about what they're prepared to air. There were questions too this week for Rugby News, which had answered on Twitter, which isn't always the best place to make a considered and nuanced response to criticism. First, it said this. Rugby News ran the column in the interests of free speech, but the tone and language would have benefited from further changes to reduce the harm it has caused. And in tweet two, Rugby News said it shouldn't have published that column and added this. We apologise for any unforeseen hurt felt by our audience, in particular to Alice Soper. Well, the impact was, of course, entirely foreseeable for Rugby News. As Sam Casey himself said, ruffling feathers was the aim of this particular turkey. And Sam Casey himself could have foreseen that singling out an articulate and motivated adversary in Alice Soper was likely to mean he'd ended up having to defend something that, by his own admission, he didn't put much time or thought into. Indeed, he later told Stuff he penned the whole thing on his phone in 20 minutes while waiting for the Inter-Islander ferry. On its own website, Rugby News talks a good game when it claims our stable of writers include the majority of the nation's top scribes whose wealth of experience shines through in their writing. Now whether that column really caused harm or significant hurt is debatable because it's all been said before and he is far from the only person with a media profile who turns in poorly written and thought out columns these days in our media so perhaps it's time that editors who care about their publications sent some of these columns back and told their writers to do better before handing over the cheque. One of the reasons the new radio sports network SENZ is launching in just over a week from now is to be in time for the Tokyo Olympics less than a fortnight away. The Olympic Games is one sports event where male and female competitors and competitions get roughly equal billing. But people there are less keen about thousands of athletes and broadcasters from more than 200 countries flying in for the Games in the middle of a pandemic. This was the lead story for RNZ News on Friday. Spectators are being shut out of all Olympic venues in Tokyo as the highly contagious Delta variant of COVID-19 spreads through the city. 
But one thing Japanese sports fans can look forward to is Japan's top sports star competing for a country at the Games, world tennis number two, Naomi Osaka. Now, she's currently not at Wimbledon, where the finals wrap up this weekend, because she's taking time out for her mental health. And it's a decision she explained in her own words in Time magazine this week in the form of a personal essay for the magazine's Olympic preview edition. The issue came to a head, though, during the French Open last month, where she cited the media as a major reason. City News Talk ZB Sport. Victoria Azarenka has urged Naomi Osaka to change her stance on avoiding media conferences at the French Tennis Open, but says the media also have a responsibility. The world number two carried out her promise to boycott any post-match analysis after her opening round win at Roland Garros and received a $20,000 fine. Now that fine was small change for her, but Naomi Osaka copped criticism for that, partly because she said she didn't see the need to front up to people who doubt her, and that rubbed the sporting media up the wrong way. There's an obligation there for my mind, you know, that they wouldn't be where they are, not necessarily because of media, but the media is a conduit for building the sport. News Talk ZB sports host Andrew Alderson, and there he was talking to a non-sport host, Kate Hawksby, who didn't agree. Why is it she gets penalised when you could argue perhaps they need to reframe the rules around how the press behave? The Herald on Sunday was, to mix sporting metaphors, in Naomi Osaka's corner in its main editorial. Osaka can't expect to avoid media attention and scrutiny, but she has the right to question the interview treadmill that top players currently face. But would the Herald be as happy to cut Naomi Osaka the same slack if its owner had paid through the nose for the rights to put tennis on TV? Presenters Goran Paladin and Kirsty Stanway delivered a very different verdict on their Sky Sports chat show, The Verdict. Broadcasters pay massive rights, massive amounts of money for the rights, and that comes with access to athletes because people at home, and we're fans as well, we're consumers, that's what we want. Yeah, and uh, we are the number one stakeholder. As a, as a fan, what do we want? We want access to the players. We want to know exactly what happened out there on the court, on the field, wherever they're playing their chosen sport. And most post-match press conferences don't matter much, but they can. For instance, journalists like the former cyclist Paul Kimmage and David Walsh got Lance Armstrong's denials of doping on the record in press conferences when there was no other way to get him to answer questions about it. But on scoop.co.nz, Gordon Campbell pointed out that New Zealand's politicians could offer the answer. Ministers often decline requests for an interview and issue a statement instead later on. And so far... No cabinet minister has ever been fined or threatened with expulsion from the executive wing for ducking a live interview or for not holding a press conference. Caitlin Thompson writes for the tennis magazine Racket in New York, and she's sat through hundreds of tennis press conferences of the kind that Naomi Osaka has turned into a major issue for the sport. This has really struck a chord with a lot of people, especially outside of the sport. I think part of that has to do with the fact that Naomi Osaka is an athlete who She's speaking to an audience of consumers, which is why she's such a brand-friendly star and obviously now the world's highest-paid female endorser uh, for an athlete, but also because she culturally really represents a lot of things that the tennis world can and should look to include, which is youth, globalism, and you know some nods to racial and, and social equity. So I think she's a leader, and I think whether she intended to or not, she's getting many, many, many more people and eyeballs on this sport in a way that is going to, I think, ultimately force some change within within our ecosystem, hopefully for the better. Well, that's what I wonder, though, because the question is being asked here, is this the end of press conferences? Isn't it more actually about players now hold the power? It's not really about 
press conference behaviour by journalists like you or uh, mm-hmm. the mental health of elite athletes? I mean, for the record, Colin, my behavior in press conferences is uh, unimpeachable. I'll just have you know that. <laughs> um, yes, I think it is about player power. And again, I, whether she intended to or not, I think Naomi Osaka now has a bit of a track record. You saw last summer when she was acting in solidarity with the fight for racial equity that a lot of the NBA players took up. She ineffectively halted an entire tournament in a boycott and forced the tennis world essentially to its knees and really to, to reckon with it whether they wanted to or not. And keep in mind, tennis is a sport that can be very pro-clutching and can be very traditionalist, but has actually been on the right side of history with a lot of progressive notions, LGBT inclusion, racial inclusion, gender equity, or something close to it. The way you're contextualizing it within player power is really the relevant way to understand it, because now between their platforms, social uh, sort of footprints and and larger ability to connect with an audience that doesn't need the traditional mediums of the tournaments or even the press within those sort of tennis ecosystems, we're seeing now the ability that they have to reach a larger and more influential group of people. It's curious, though, This, if we turn to this kind of media event that is the post-game press conference, most tennis players, even if they don't particularly enjoy them or find them mature, are more than happy to do them because they need them. It's exposure for their sponsor. They put on the hat and so on. Isn't this really about creation of content for the rights holders, the, broad, the, the, the commercial customers? You're absolutely right. And I also think these tennis players, unless you're very elite, they need the media more than the media needs them. And I think Naomi Osaka wouldn't have this platform were she not to have enjoyed a fairly robust and really enthusiastic press coverage, including our own, in the last few years. I mean, I think there's no tennis player who has risen to major prominence without some kind of apparatus uh, of the press behind them. And so she's able to earn and able to reach that platform, largely because of obviously what she's doing on court, but how she's also used that to sort of boomerang into a larger, a larger context. The press conference itself is not outdated. I think there's a very, very robust role for the press to play. And I think Within the tennis ecosystem, the post-match press conference is usually attended by, and, and the people asking questions are usually print and digital journalists. There's another type of press that is layered onto it, and this is the one that is very, very valuable, as you mentioned, to the rights holders. In fact, it's part of their deals with the tournaments that they get access to the players for television broadcast. And so one of the things that I think the world is looking at is the press conference itself, which, as I said, provides a lot of utility and really gives a chance for serious journalists to get more than a soundbite, which is what you'll get on a television broadcast, but also is at times part of some of the, you know, misogyny, outright racism, and, you know, certainly a lot of yahoos who can get into those rooms. The way those rooms are policed and the way credentials are are issued to those print and digital journalists is very outdated. And I can tell you that from personal experience, seeing the types of people who get into those rooms, a lot of times they're maybe working for a giant news outlet, but they have no tennis context. They don't understand the game. They have never covered tennis before. They do it only sort of as a moonlight. And they're the ones really looking for salacious stuff. The players are fair to object to some of the stuff that they get asked in press. That is something that I very, very strongly feel like needs to sort of be modernized and improved. Yes, elsewhere I've, I've heard you describe some of the people you can encounter in these tennis press rooms as uh, bozos. Um, so <laughs> I, I guess, uh, and you were talking with the Irish uh, sports writer Ken Early and podcaster about uh, he had this theory that the bigger a tournament gets, 
the more it draws in these non-expert um, journalists. So if it's an ATP tournament, as you say, it might be a handful of specialists. Once it gets to French Open level or in another sport, you know, the Football or Rugby World Cup or something like that, then all of a sudden you're going to get the kind of people who might ask the sort of things that have been read out lately as an indictment on tennis press conferences mm-hmm. like outright sexism in there. Yeah, I mean, or Eugenie Bouchard, who's, you know, obviously the Canadian star who made a big splash a couple of years ago, but has been a bit of a scant presence at the highest levels of the sport, you know, being asked to twirl, uh, asked about who she's dating, who she's taking to the Super Bowl as her date, you know, and, and it's inappropriate at best, but it tends to be asked of the women, especially the ones who are sort of deemed attractive. And I would say, again, if you are a professional journalist, you tend to understand what's fair game and what's not. But I think when you do have a credentialing system that tends to grandfather a lot of folks in um, or, or pays deference to giant platforms as opposed to actually more knowledgeable and fresher, more culturally relevant platforms like a lot of podcasters or a lot of younger bloggers, there really is a discrepancy there in terms of knowledge, context, and what kind of coverage they're creating when the tournament is big. It's a little bit more Wild West. And I think that is something that I would like to see changed very much. And writing about tennis, it seems very particular individual sport. And you've even described it as sometimes a bit like Formula One in that the resources that flow into those uh, top players and their teams and their support structures, uh, like Roger Federer, the Williams sisters and so on, really gives them a huge competitive advantage. And that's why, as they get older and older, they're still winning. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things that is coming out of this, as the prize money has increased, and the endorsements, it's really only increased at the top, top, top echelon. And one of the ways I think is having unified broadcasting rights so you don't have to chase down 18 different streamers to watch matches in the same tournament, which is what's happening to people in the U.S. now trying to watch Roland Garros. We have three separate apps that we somehow have to navigate between, all of which you have to pay for to be able to watch the same day's slew of matches. A difficult but doable slew of changes that could happen with a unified voice among the players. And I think the tournaments would be very smart and probably, frankly, very eager to come to the table to do that if it didn't feel like it was a bunch of tiny fiefdoms essentially combating each other for for all of this small pot. But finally, Caitlin, if we were to go ahead, maybe, I don't know, the US Open of 2027, do you think you will still be in a room with players having these press conferences, some of them attending it grudgingly, some not? Or by then, will it all be broken up and... um, if you want to hear uh, Coco Goff or um, Naomi Osaka speak, it'll be on uh, Naomi Osaka streaming.com, her own personal channel, um, or via her Insta feed or something like that. I mean, 2027 is hard to picture. We'll probably all be, you know, brains living in jars, flying our spaceships around, my hope. But I think short of that, probably within the next two or three years, my hope is you'll probably be getting in those press conferences a lot of forward promotion to the Coco de Goff documentary on Netflix or Amazon Prime special series behind the scenes. Within the press role within sport, it still remains a better but very vital organ that can help create personalities and create hunger for this amazing, you know, live sports experience. If you can get people interested and make them feel included and hopefully give them an easy way to experience it, they'll end up buying tickets, they'll end up buying rackets, they'll end up watching from the first ball struck to the last with feature films and behind the scenes and, you know, individual stars, but those who still play very much within the tennis sandbox is is a healthy ecosystem for the sport. And I see other sports doing it. And so that makes me feel optimistic. And hopefully in 2027, you won't be sitting next to some bozo in a press conference asking uh, a professional athlete who they're taking to the Super Bowl. <laughs> no, hopefully not. Exactly.
That's Caitlin Thompson, co-founder of tennis magazine Racket, talking to me there from New York. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, talk radio station News Talk ZB launched a new talkback show last Monday, Wellington Mornings. And that means a return to locally hosted talk on the network, broadcast in the Wellington region from 9 till noon, instead of the output from Auckland, which Wellingtonians have had for several years now. The new host is Nick Mills, who's the owner of the Capitals basketball team, the Saints, and the owner of bars and restaurants around the city. And as such, he has pretty firm views about hot issues for the CBD right now, like transport housing, urban planning and the lack of it. But on day one of the new show, there were some hiccups getting local MPs on the line. Nikki Willis is online, I believe, I think, or coming over the, the phone line. Not ideal, but we'll, we'll have a chat to our... ZB listeners in Wellington heard the studio dialing up the local National Party MP Nicola Willis during the preceding news bulletin. International Rugby with Access Solutions, elevating you and your business to a higher level. I'm Adam Cooper, that's News Talk ZB News and Sport to five and a half past 11. Wellington Mornings with Nick Mills is back next. And when he introduced Nicola Willis initially, he got her name wrong and then right, eventually. I got your Good name morning. right. I got your name right. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's great to be on the line to you. And I guess you've got all the machines worked out and the microphone worked out by now. Now, in his first week of Wellington Mornings, Nick Mills had some pretty good discussion and coverage of issues like the ongoing bus catastrophe. And with sister paper The Herald now boosting its reporting and journalism in Wellington lately, reinstating a local morning show was a good move. The webpage for the show says that Nick Mills brings an honest, edgy and fun show to Wellingtonians each weekday. But given all the angst over the capital's problems at the moment, fun can be in short supply from the listeners who get in touch, as Nick Mills discovered on day one. Wow. Wow, wow. I just got a text. Might be my first and last day if I read it out. I'm, uh, yeah, well. The Wellington Council are a strange bunch. They have buggered Island Bay. Brooklyn Hill is now dangerously buggered. Oriental Bay, buggered. How do they think tankers and freight trucks will get to the airport when the two units meet at their buggered Manor Street? They buggered them years ago. All the shops are now buggered. They want to bugger Lambton Key. Buses are buggered. Water pipes are buggered. Surge pipes, buggered. Huge rate increases Buggers everywhere. Now they want to increase the parking charges and bugger the entertainment. It wasn't written by me. It could have been written by me, but it was written by Joe. ZB's Wellington host Nick Mills there setting a record of buggers per minute on the very first day of his new show. Well, that's all we have for you on the media this weekend. We'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, though, with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National. Thanks very much, Colin. That's me, yes. Um, in for Jim Mora this weekend on, well, on Sunday. Uh, and that's Colin Peacock.